This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 24th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, we hear from Kurt Rademacher about evidence for the earliest high-dwelling people. David Grimm is out this week, but will return next week with more daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. High-altitude living puts a strain on the body. With low oxygen, more solar exposure, and colder temperatures than lower-lying lands. Despite these forbidding conditions, people were living above 4,500 meters over 11,000 years ago in the Peruvian Andes. I spoke with Kurt Rademacher about how they got there and why they chose such a life. Our paper in Science discusses some new discoveries in the the high Peruvian Andes. We've been investigating human adaptation and colonization of, of extreme environments, in this case, the extreme high-altitude Andean plateau. And the result of this research has been the discovery of of the highest Pleistocene Ice Age sites in the world. How did you actually uncover such a the site? It's very high up. It's kind of remote. What did you do to look for it? Earth's high-altitude lands are among the least studied on Earth. They don't get much attention because they're so remote and difficult to work in. But they do contain a lot. For years, we did systematic exploration of a section of the Andean Plateau where we expected early sites to be. And it was just through sheer determination and doing a lot of field work that we found the sites we are reporting about. We also used some interesting techniques using uh, predictive modeling, and those helped us to narrow down our search and discover what we were looking for. So when you said field research, does that mean that you and your teammates were literally climbing around in the mountains trying to find any evidence for former inhabitants? Yes, that's right. I think about 13 field seasons went into the research reported in the paper. In many of these field seasons, these were pedestrian surveys because a lot of the area that we explored is inaccessible by road. There are no roads in this area, or there are very few. So a lot of this exploration was by doing backpacking, from the coast into the high Andes. Sometimes we would use mule caravans 
establish a base camp in a remote area and then spend several weeks exploring systematically that area. And over time, we managed to cover enough ground where we found the sort of environments that were targets for the early settlers there. These are pretty high altitudes, and the conditions can be extreme. What were the conditions like when you were looking and perhaps for when the Paleo-Indians were first living there? Conditions today are quite extreme. The Andean Plateau is one of the two highest plateaus on Earth, the other one being the Tibetan Plateau. And these lands are very demanding. They're, in this case, the Andean Plateau is, is very arid, so water is not everywhere. It's very restricted in its distribution. But the biggest challenge is hypoxia, low oxygen pressure. And anyone who's traveled to altitude knows what this feels like. Above 4,000 meters, there's less than 60% of the oxygen partial pressure that we enjoy at sea level. So even breathing is difficult, especially doing work is very difficult. So it is necessary to acclimatize gradually in order to be productive and happy at this altitude. And the other big challenge is cold. It gets quite cold at night, so you have to have the right gear to stay productive and, and healthy up there. Did you have to have, did you have to bring oxygen with you? No, no. We've never used supplemental oxygen, thank goodness. <laughs> we, uh, that's something that becomes more essential when you get, say, above 6,000 meters okay. in elevation. And what we're talking about is working up to about 4,500, 5,000 meters elevation. It's quite high, but it's very possible to acclimatize without any supplemental anything. It's just a matter of acclimatizing gradually to this environment. And when you walk into these elevations from lower elevation, that becomes much easier for your body. I think you mentioned in the paper that you actually have to eat double the calories in order to go about business up at this elevation. Those were some of the findings of another group that looked at what they would need to feed soldiers to keep them going at altitude. A lot of what we know about what the human body can do in, in different extreme situations comes from military training and physiological testing. So it's true when you first go to elevation that you aren't hungry at all, actually. That's one of the symptoms of hypoxia. But as you become acclimatized, you do realize that you need more calories just to keep going. Your metabolism increases dramatically, and many people who go to the to high altitude end up being a lot skinnier when they come home. I was going to just say the high altitude diet. <laughs> yeah, we joke that we could sell this as a, a diet plan. You know, just we just take people up and let them sit in a lounge chair, and they could lose weight over <laughs> a period of, of weeks. It would work every time. But together, all these things would be you could imagine would be very challenging for hunter gatherers. You need to eat more, so you need to find more food. There isn't water everywhere, so you have to really keep an eye on your water sources and not leave them, or at least not leave one before you find a new one. You need to keep warm, and the nights there are very cold. Days are pleasant enough, however, and there's a low oxygen problem. There's also a lack of trees, so what do you burn to cook your food and stay warm at night? All of these things are challenges that together make these environments among the most challenging on Earth. So what you found there was an area where people were living 11,500 years ago, and there were a lot of artifacts there. How were you able to get dates on the location? We actually have dates going back to about 12,500 years ago. What we did to get dates is that we sampled large mammal bones throughout the archaeological sediment sequence from top to bottom. We got quite a few of these samples for 
dating using radiocarbon. And we obtained dates using a slightly different methodology at each of three different laboratories. We're very, um, well, I guess what you could say we're very proud of this chronology. It's a very solid chronology, and we're very confident that our dating is correct because we have such nice correspondence among the various laboratories we use, and we have quite a few dates that all say the same thing about how old this site is. What kind of implements did you find there? What was the area used for? The area was primarily used for hunting by people who lived there. At least that's what the food remains indicate, that hunting of camelids, the wild vicuña in Wanako, and Andean deer were the main draw for people in the area. The tools that we find, the stone tools, are primarily made of obsidian and local andesite and jasper. Those were used to make hunting implements, spear points and knives, but also scrapers for working hides, which would have been critical for creating waterproof and uh, weatherproof clothing to be able to live it in the cold that is typical of this area, especially at the end of the last ice age when that took place. We also find artifacts that are not related to simple subsistence. We find beads from necklaces, quartz crystals that were probably brought from somewhere else that may have been uh, worn as decoration. Going back to the dating, are there other artifacts of this comparable age at other comparable heights? Not at comparable heights. That's the difference. We do find comparable artifacts at other sites in the Andes, but at much lower elevation. We've probably increased the distribution of where we know people who have been at the same time period by about a 1,000 meters or a little shy of that. But many of the artifacts we have are recognizable as being similar to ones at similar age sites at lower elevation in places like northwest Argentina or northern Chile or coastal Peru, which is interesting because if some of the same artifacts are found in these different locations, that might mean that people in these areas were sharing some sort of cultural ideas about how to make things, cultural design. It does make me want to ask the question, why would they go to these heights? I mean, if there's coastal living available to them and other lower-lying sites that they could use, what made them brave these extreme conditions? I'm not sure I have the answer to that question, but when you think about the challenges, you, you ask, why bother going to this place? But that's only one side of the coin. The other side is that these areas, despite their challenges, presented opportunities. And for whatever reason, someone first wandered up to this area when they did, they would have discovered resources that would have encouraged them to stay. And those resources include things like Peru's largest source of obsidian or volcanic glass. A portion of that obsidian source occurs within this basin. So there was abundant high-quality material to make stone tools with. Probably more obvious than that to someone first entering the area is that there were thousands of animals living in this basin. It's a very well-watered, it's like an oasis compared to the surrounding area. So when people did discover this basin, for whatever reason, ringed by glaciated stratovolcanoes up to 21,000 feet, they would have discovered a resource-rich, well-watered area with animals, with stone tools for hunting and cutting them up, for rock shelters for living in, even a highly combustible cushion plant whose resin creates a really nice, warm campfires. So everything really necessary for life was there. It must have been attractive to people or else they wouldn't have stayed. There are several examples out there of adaptations to high altitudes. 
in people living in Tibet and in the Andes. How do those genetic changes and those adaptations relate to this change in the high-altitude timeline that you're presenting here? I think our research bears directly on those findings. We've pushed back the date for earliest occupation of the high Andes by nearly a millennium. We've also shown that this early occupation is not just a quick little exploration of high altitude. It's really a robust signature of early settlement. By pushing back the date of initial, not just exploration, but of settlement, this tells us that less time elapsed between the first settlement of low elevations and the first settlement of high elevations. So less time was required for the development of, of say, acclimatization or adaptation to high-altitude conditions like hypoxia. Just to elaborate a bit more on this, because less time elapsed between the first settlement of low elevations and the first settlement of high elevations, this either means if genetic adaptation is involved in this sort of settlement process, if genetic adaptation is necessary, then that means that genetic adaptation evolved much more rapidly than we usually would think of, of, of a genetic adaptation evolving. Or it means that genetic adaptation was not necessary at all for initial colonization, but that it came later. Mm-hmm. And that life at high altitude up to 4,500 meters is simply part of our, our repertoire that we have. It's something we can do. That still leaves unanswered the question of when these genetic adaptations that we know exist in modern groups, when do those genetic adaptations evolve and do those evolve in resident groups after they were already there? And that's an answerable question. Mm-hmm. I mean, the new genetic work is just fascinating, the new stuff coming out. It's amazing. But it doesn't tell us everything we need to know. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see the linkage between genetic and archaeological data and that's what it's going to take to answer, answer the question of, of when and how these adaptations evolved that allowed people to permanently in these elevations. Kurt, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Sarah. It's my pleasure. Kurt Rademacher and colleagues write about humans striving for the heights in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science 
and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.